Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We're very excited to bring you this bonus episode from LAFCON, the RA Lafferty Conference. In this episode, we're going to be presenting Andrew Ferguson's talk, made up of entirely glowing geniuses, R.A. Lafferty's radical theories on human intelligence. Uh, Andrew Ferguson is a scholar at University of Maryland. He is a Lafferty scholar as well. He's writing a biography on him. And um, this talk was really fascinating. It's about the way Lafferty thinks about the notion of genius in the world using textual examples and uh, other Lafferty ephemera. Yeah, I thought this one was a lot of fun. And it was especially interesting for us, I think, to see so many similarities between Lafferty and Wolf. And we've got a few more of these episodes coming up, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we did. Andrew Ferguson is our first guest and speaker. Um, and I will allow him to introduce himself. Uh, I, I uh, would be academic, uh, at least trying to trying to be one uh, permanently. Somebody will uh, let me allow me to do that. Um, I, I did a master's degree in Tulsa, um, specifically so I could read all of Lafferty's unwritten writing or unpublished writings. Um, his unwritten ones too. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> it took a little more doing to get access to, but I was, I was able to able to pull it off. Um, and uh, and I'm um, in law in the long term working on uh, his biography, which I'll be glad to, to talk about with, with people later. Um, and that's that's sort of where things stand for me. So, but uh, today I'm talking about. Uh, Ari Lafferty's uh, uh, um, radical theories about human intelligence. So, we'll, uh, we'll get going from here. Thank you. Is my is my sound okay? Okay. Yeah. Feeling here in the back. Good. All right. So, uh, in the classes I teach, I have very few hard and fast rules about how or what to write. Uh, one of them, however, being that you, you should never begin a paper with a dictionary definition. Um, after the, the since the dawn of time type intro, it's the worst way to start a paper. It announces up front to your audience that you couldn't be bothered to figure out another way to kick things off, um, and likely also that you started the paper a few hours before it was due in class. Um, so you settled for grabbing the one reference work you had at hand, um, these days Google, and, and you trusted that the creative juices, if not copious coffee and, and maybe a spare Adderall or two, would kick in to take things from there. And of course, as with most rules, this one comes with a Lafferty exception. Uh, because Ray Lafferty didn't just know the dictionary meaning of the words he used, as well as the meanings of all the words' roots and cognate forms across a cornucopia of languages, he often made his stories hinge on such points, uh, uh, on such classic points, propounding ever more improbable etymologies to justify the weird passages he prepared for the words that came his way. But even when he's not foregrounding this lexicographical label, labor or putting it in clear view, like in his character names, it's still something he clearly holds in mind, and something worth considering when identifying a concept of importance to him. Uh, all of which is a pretty grand, hand-wavy way of me filling up my first paragraph, so I can wait till paragraph two to tell you what the Oxford English Dictionary has to tell us about the word genius. <laughs> <laughs> the OED, of course, is the great reference work of the English language, unlike student favorites like Merriam-Webster's or Dictionary.com, each of which has their uses. The OED will tell you not only what a word means, uh, but also how it came to mean that, where we took it from, and what it's done since, and what it did along the way that we might have forgotten in the meantime. 
Genius, you probably will not be surprised to learn, is borrowed from Latin. There it is the, the male spirit of a family, embodied in the head of the household and reflected in each of its members. The etymological drift is from the verb to beget, or perhaps to engender, uh, the links across to generation and genitals, uh, not to mention engineering, our potential Lepertian uh, catnip. Um, there's also a false friend leap across to intelligence, uh, which I'll, I'll get back to later on. Now, English and, and every other language, for the most part, does not have the extreme sense of embodiment uh, in the Roman paterfamilias. Um, so when it borrows the word, it's for a less specific manifestation. Often that of the genius loci, the spirit of any given place or particular thing, still though as a specific manifestation. What would later be referred to when we reborrowed the word from the French, where it also has the interesting sense of patron saint um, as, as a genie. But it could also still refer to a spirit connected to a single person, either as a tutelary or guardian spirit, or as one half of a bonded pair, shoulder angels and devils both being subsets of genie, um, and also that's where we get the first sense of an evil genius. Ultimately, under the influence of what I'm, I'm glossing over hugely as, as Renaissance modes of thought about the soul and the self, this genius loses any separate identity, instead becoming something akin to temperament or disposition. That is to say, one's genius is the part of oneself that is most fully oneself, what makes each of us distinctive. <coughs> to, excuse, I've got a cough that's lingered on again. From there, it's the work of a mere hundred years or so before referring to a person as a genius, someone who is characterized by their exceptional skill or aptitude in a particular area. The OED cites this characteristic of quote uh, from 1762 about uh, a state builder extraordinaire, Inigo Jones. Uh, only at this point, can genius become decoupled from an actual person, um, an unindividuated intellectual power without any obvious source or origin, but finally it becomes uh, colloquially an adjective that just means something's clever or, or, or nice or good, um, a genius move. Uh, in this sense, it's separated out and elevated above mere talent, so much so that for, for some aesthetic theoreticians, uh, Schiller, for instance, genius is accompanied by a certain naivete, it's something fragile and unpredictable, which cannot be tampered with or constrained, lest it be damaged beyond repair. And on this framework hangs virtually the entire Romanticist period, as well as, as its periodic revivals. Um, you'll note here, too, that from all, in all of this, uh, from paterfamilias to romantic artists, there's very little room for, uh, for women in the definition of genius. Um, women have to content themselves throughout all of this period with the development of, of, of talents, or in being you know, one of Jane Austen's favorite words, accomplished. That word genius is hardly ever seen referring to women until the 20th century in the likes of uh, Mary Curie Sklodowska, um, the Polish name, of course, being requisite in the Lafferty paper. Um, the best most could hope for is to be an ingenue, uh, a naive presence lighting up those around her. Today there's something approaching parody, but then also the word is, has been so diluted as to have lost all meaning beyond just an intensifier. Women can be admitted to genius once there aren't stakes involved anymore to that, to that judgment. So well, where then do we see this in Lafferty's work? All over. Um, starting with the, the Requisinians that Adam had three brothers, every one of whom is a genius. And also that odd little genius, Alois Foucault-Ug, maybe, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, who ends up in Wreckville for his and the world's safety. Even at this early stage, there's more than a bit of the, this, the, the hip, this, the whiff of con artistry to Lafferty's geniuses. Um, certainly the presence of genius does not imply morality. Um, the extra-digital masters of the pit and the six fingers of time are geniuses, after all, or at least is claimed to be. 
The flat-footed genius Joe Spade of Hog Belly Honey uh, knows self-preservation better than he does any of the more traditional virtues. Um, it's also not necessarily a status one is born to. Some of the madmen of, of that story are raised to genius by the ill treatment to which they're subjected. Um, the curriculum of the Cameroy aims to consolidate genius status, suggesting it can be inculcated. Um, if you read the later story, New People, then you'll know it can even be instilled by the eating of certain bowls of chili. But then there are others for whom genius is an epithet. Um, you may encounter at some point uh, the genius who is only 12 years old, Susie Pelusi, but more familiarly there's the seminal genius, Aloysius Sip Shiplap, Roy Mega, the electronics genius, and of course Austro, the young general purpose genius of the genus Australopithecus. <coughs> Think two of the young super geniuses of many orders, human, robot, animal, angel, and serpent's egg. As in that novel, genius often is dangerous, both to the conformist societies of Lafferty's near future dystopias and to the possessors of that genius who threaten them, such as Ishmael of the Barons, who is one of the few authentic geniuses born in the first half of the 21st century. But sometimes geniuses only end up prey as prey for other geniuses still, not just in the con artist sense, as with the histories of Carl Effigy, but in the very fatal sense of the genius families in Lord Torpedo or Gyroscope. And for me to just drop one more piece here before getting to where all this is going, which is an excerpt from A Tall Tale Within the Tall Tale of Magazine Section. Then there appeared a wolverine of genius in the neighborhood. In every species, whether wolverine or human or other, about one individual in five million will be an individual of genius. The gifted wolverine got about a hundred other wolverines to assemble. He had to be a genius because the slashing solitary wolverines are lone hunters who hate other wolverines only slightly less than they hate creatures of other species. But he assembled them. The mob of savage wolverines ambushed the good giant, Horace Good John Christopher, one night. They killed him and they tore his hot flesh right off his bones and ate it completely. The narr narrative here is a tabloid newspaperman. So we can forgive him a bit of exaggeration, but, but through him, Lafferty is closer than usual here to the romanticist position. The solitary genius appears and inspire, inspires others around him. Moreover, his genius is an end to itself. But the result is the death of a good man. Genius again factored as potentially grave danger to the moral order, whether justified or not, even when it's as rare as one in five million. So keep that ratio in mind for what follows. So uh, moving on, Lafferty uh, comes near to the end of his career. Um, thanks to the dogged, blessed persistence of Dan Knight, he has finally been able to bring out more than Melchizedek, the capstone of the Archer cycle, a work that gets as close as any to reaching the creative vision that Lafferty's been chasing all of his writing days. But there's one issue. The book doesn't end, or, or, or rather, it ends too many times. Uh, Knight is happy to publish as many endings as Lafferty wishes to provide, but he asks that Ray attempt to explain why there are so many to begin with. The resulting statement, entitled An Essay Explaining the Alternate Endings of the Book Argo, in the course of which I'm obliged to explain the detailed workings of the world itself, is to my mind the most important statement Lafferty ever made about his own work. Uh, which is not to be confused with the day after the world ended, the speech he gave, which is the most important statement Lafferty or just about anyone ever made about science fiction. Lafferty starts answering the question of alternate endings by saying he couldn't answer it until something took possession of my hand and wrote words that were not my words at all. The book Argo seems to have alternate endings because everything and everybody in the world seems to have alternate endings. That's the way all the worlds and all the people in them are made. That is the detailed working of the world itself, but the endings do not really end. <coughs> Lafferty doesn't take kindly to this authorial possession, but it gets him started towards answering his question. 
He looks over his life's work, thinking he had written quite a few novels and many short works and also verses and scraps. But now I understood by some sort of intuition that what I had been writing was a never-ending story, and the name of it was A Ghost Story. The name comes from the only thing that I have learned about all people, that they are ghostly and that they are sometimes split off. He then moves on to the other thing that he knows about all people, despite his statement immediately prior, and that is the law of intellectual constancy, which he attributes to the writer Havelock Ellis. Ellis, Lafferty says, believed that there are no common people, that all of us are geniuses, that all of us are absolutely wonderful. Now, while the man himself would be an excellent Lafferty character, a genius even of a highly perverse sort, I have not been able to find this writing of Ellis's. There is such a thing as the law of intellectual constancy hanging around, but it originates with the French poet, critic, and all-around oddball, uh, Rémy de Gaumont. And it refers not to the general equality of individual minds, but rather to the persistent qualities of human intelligence from prehistoric times to the present day. So far as I can tell, Ellis, who was, among other things, the vice president of the Eugenics Education Society, would be astonished to be credited with what Lafferty proposes as his 1904 book, A Study of British Genius, reaches quite different conclusions. There he attempts to track natural tendencies to contribute to society across various class divisions, while trying also to account for differing circumstances of birth, upbringing, marriage, or lack thereof, etc. Most especially, Ellis reaches the conclusion that whites of Nordic origin are most likely to be geniuses, while those with darker features, at the time not only uh, blacks, Hispanics, and native aboriginal populations, but also South and East Asians, Jews, Poles, Italians, Irishmen, at very much, cetera, uh, could attain to genius, but it was very rare and highly unlikely. Um, his proof naturally being that, that such people in an era of massive structural inequality rarely made contributions to the sciences, while white people seemed to do so with ease somehow. Imagine. Um, given this, it seems fair to refer instead to Lafferty's law of intellectual constancy, and boy is it a doozy. The thesis is that all persons with brains and bodies not seriously damaged, and, and put a pen in that, by the way, um, are of about equal power and ability, that a guy who scratches out a slim living on two and a half anchor acres in Shantytown is as intelligent and capable in all ways as John D. Rockefeller, or Thomas Alva Edison, or Willem Wagner, or George Bernard Shaw, or Victor Hugo, or the President of the United States, or of U.S. Steel, or of Alexander Graham Bell, or Henrik Ibsen. It was simply that people's fancies turned to different ways of fulfilling themselves. People selected the enjoyments that appealed to them and followed them out in lifetimes of high pleasure. Some exulted in the wonderful world and racy challenges of extreme poverty. It takes as much brains and ability for the very poor to make it as it does for the very rich. Laverty races here through basically a who's who of geniuses, uh, 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 lacking only the proverbial Einstein. It's everyone who is at one point considered to be the best ever in their field. And he's putting them all on an even keel with the guy who lives paycheck to paycheck, or even without paychecks at all. The human race, he continues, is made up entirely of glowing geniuses, and the begenius human race is totally ghostly on all the meanings of the word, overflowing so that very often persons cannot be contained in a single body. And again later, returning to the earlier question, and I'll... I'll, I'll one more longish quote here, because I can't possibly say or sum this up better than to meet others. Why are there alternate endings to the book Argo? There aren't. There aren't any endings at all. A crosscut of the multiplicities may seem like a bunch of endings, but that is only a seeming. It is a forward surge on multiple tracks of multiple powers, and it still goes on. It does not end. Because that is the way the world works. 
That is the simple explanation of the detailed workings of the world itself. The people of the world are none of them common, are all of them geniuses, are all of them wonderful. So the power is always there, and the great overspilling of the multiplicity and the power. All the people are ghostly, and all of them are split or exploding people. They have rapport with all their fellows in time and in space, with all of them now in the world, with all of them who have been or will be in the world. Why are there alternate endings? There weren't. It only seems so, but there was never any hint of anything ending. And I think first you have to note that this is this is a deeply, beautifully humane view of the world. Um, not without its problems, of course, uh, but, but worth mentioning on those grounds all the same. Um, second, note this consistent connection of genius to ghostliness. At the beginning of the essay, Lafferty finds himself possessed, writing with a hand that is not his own. This is his genius, not just in the sense of his writerly aptitude, but in the more personal, personal sense of his own ghostly spirit, or his own ghostly split. Throughout all the books and stories he's written, his genius has meanwhile been hard at work on the necessarily fragmentary ghost story, which he says in a draft of the statement is marked by an underlay that has never attained clear visibility, never attained clear publication. In one of its guises, then, this underlay is the expression of the self, and not just any expression, but an expression of his self when it is most fully being himself. But think here, too, of all those odd stories of Ray at conventions, seeming completely out of it in one place, and then suddenly appearing in full faculties in another. Chalk it up to teleportation or bilocation, as you will, but underlying both of them noted as a manifestation, perhaps, of that unique Lafferian genius. Third, of course, this notion of intellectual constancy flies in the face of most assumptions about contemporary society, then and as now. As Lafferty notes, though again through the Ellis stand-in, the people who are manufacturing the current thinking of the world consider themselves very superior people, and they would not easily admit that they were barely equal to the lowest of the lowest. The very ethos of 19th century capitalism, built as it was on several centuries of increasingly vulgar Calvinism and social Darwinism, would directly equate the attainments of a person with their value. They have much because they are worth much. Others have little because they are worth little. An ideology that lives on in the prosperity gospel of contemporary evangelical megachurches. <coughs> There's no clearer illustration of this than the assembly line itself, with its reduction of humans to highly efficient and ideally unthinking cogs, assigned roles in a vast industrial process rather than pursuing any particular enjoyment or pleasure. Such setups, where Frederick Taylor's discipline makes sure the very slightest of movements is coordinated for efficiency, depend for the success upon the suppression of anything like an expression of individual genius. Moreover, lacking the brave New World-style full-scale breeding programs that eugenicists even more hardcore than Block Ellis would support, there has to be a means of separating out very early on those suited to such labor from those who are not, both on the low and high ends of an imagined scale. Spiggins, the emphasis on intelligence as a single factor, or quotient even, separable from any other aspect of a person. Where genius is messy, unpredictable, and dependent on context because it's entangled with your soul and your body, intelligence is a single number, something that can be divined from tests, stamped on a file, and used to compare people from vastly different situations, such that a 100 IQ is supposed to, to express approximately the same aptitude, no matter the circumstances of the test taker. Though the inventor of the IQ test, Alfred Binet, was careful to note that his results should never be considered in isolation from other observations, most early adopters, including the U.S. military and a variety of eugenics promoters, were not so circumspect. 
with the almost immediate effect of efforts to identify and ostracize, or often sterilize, the so-called feeble-minded, those who got too low a number to have a place in society going forward. The effect was especially sharp among, along ethnic and racial lines. The idea of an intellectual hierarchy of human races was hardly unique to Havelock Ellis. He follows in a great tradition of Enlightenment racism, taking in everyone from Carl Linnaeus and David Hume to Immanuel Kant and Thomas Jefferson. Despite demonstrations of genius by the likes of Phyllis Wheatley, Alada Equiano, Anton Willem Amo, and many more, not to mention the canonical status of church fathers like Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine, etc., General opinion, even among those who weren't trying to pop up slavery or Jim Crow law, remained that those of white Nordic stock simply had more capacity for intelligence. And as much as we might like to think better of ourselves in 2018, these same concepts, following an improbable resurgence in the 1980s and 90s, are still being used as a basis for political and social decision-making. Um, I'll refer the curious to uh, an excellent book by Ibram Kendi uh, called Stamped from the Beginning for a full historical overview. And of course, the fetishization of intelligence that allows us to dehumanize large portions of society cuts the other way too, with a corresponding over-reliance on those few who manage to ensconce themselves atop the hierarchy, but who seem, with each day that goes by, less tethered to any notion of civic responsibility. The anthropologist Stephen Jay Gould once said, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people, people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. Lafferty's notions of intellectual constancy goes one further by reminding us that all of those people are equal, if not in talent, then absolutely in genius. If we were to take him seriously, then we must prepare ourselves to look at the human species through entirely other eyes. One's attuned to cultural contexts and differences, one's prepared to look for the presence of sparky genius rather than the absence of regimented intelligence. Recall that Lafferty, on both sides a son of Irish immigrant stock, whose father and uncles all scratched out a living from homesteaded land, and who on the way to his Catholic school got pelted with rocks by the kids of Klansmen, grew up in Boomtown, Tulsa, where the gushing oil wells meant work for just about everybody who could come and claim it. I've argued before that one of Lafferty's outstanding skills, um, one that he honed throughout his military years as well as his decades selling electrical parts, was his genius as a listener. <coughs> Looking across his work, you will see snippets of stories not just from his own Irish roots or from the Choctaw and Chickasaw and other natives he came to know, but also Jewish, Arabic, Latino, Malay, and South Pacific, and much more besides. There are gaps still, most conspicuously any accounting of the Tulsa race riot, uh, which occurred when Lafferty was six going on seven. But just as he would walk anywhere and everywhere in a city, so too he would listen to anyone with a story to tell. Lafferty's life, like those of his characters, is, is scarce, scarcely an efficient one, or one suited to maximizing production. Though never afraid of hard work when it's there to be done, there is still a lot of sitting around and drinking and talking. Lafferty never admitted to writing more than a couple hours every day. Even once he retired from the electrical store to write full-time, he found TV and extra reading took up most of the hours he gained. If this marks a break from assembly line production, how much more does it mark one from our own hyper-capitalized lives? where every moment on or off the clock is tracked, recorded, broken down, analyzed, monetized, and sold back to us. <coughs> so what happens if we take Lafferty seriously? What if humanity is glowing geniuses all the way down? Well, for starters, we would have to admit that society as we pre presently structure it is radically unsound, built to foster only those possessed of the most destructive types of genius, chasing the most sadistic pleasures, bombs, gases, and lethal weapons generally, 
wars and rationales for wars, drones and algorithmic targets, and the burning husks of ambulances and wedding feasts. It's difficult to engage your genius when your family is being torn apart in front of, before your eyes and you personally are on fire. As in not to mention camels, we elevate the cult and archetypal status, figures with nothing to recommend them but empty charisma and a boundless capacity for cruelty, and we hang them in the sky among the signs of the zodiac so that no one can avoid viewing their every celestial motion, all the while feeding the bodies of thousands into the people grinder machines and riding off millions more to encroaching epidemics, displacements, and disasters. Taking genius seriously would mean working towards conditions conducive to the exercise and development of genius, to the cultivation of enjoyments and fancies. It would mean recognizing the value of those presently accorded the least among us, and, yes, adjusting downwards certain other valuations we have made. It means finding arrangements whereby people are not overwhelmed by the basic costs of caring for body and mind, and also ones where people are no longer shuffled around or penned up based on which side of an imaginary line they started out on. You're likely familiar with Lafferty's statements about political labels. I'm not trying to make of them any sort of modern progressive, far from it given their own history with eugenics. Rather, I'm trying to consider what Lafferty's own particular green revolution, the support and strengthening of all growing things, would mean when considered in the light of his notion, own notions of genius. Certainly he took to heart Paul's statement, that the church is a body composed of many members, many of which have very different, even contradictory-seeming functions. Several times through characters, he expresses sympathy toward the church in perdition, composed of all those members lost and damned. Are they not still part of the body, he asks, for all that they have fallen from it? Is there no provision within the church for them? And as the piece I read at LAFCON two years ago, the poor man's guide to hell asked, might they not, even to the point of Judas himself, one day be rejoined to that body? Yet we can also fairly ask, even at this extent, does Lafferty go far enough? For in denying genius to those of seriously damaged brain or body, he cracks the door for our contemporary eugenicists, and to those who expect or demand that there be only one way of thinking about things, or one way of thinking, period. Lafferty's writings team with characters who are hardly of what we would call sound mind. The crazy and the crocked, the odd ducks and queer fish, the emblems of them all being perhaps Scheherazade Jacobrock in Half a Sky, who is pregnant with the world and who is pleasantly logically mad with a beautiful cracked look in her eyes, as well as Albert, the slow child in Uranus Dam, who builds machines for the resources of his empathy and stupidity. An entire subfield of academic study, disability theory, reminds us not to take the functioning of the body for granted as if there is one normal body, but rather to respect the differing abilities of various different bodies. Likewise, encouraging us not to think as if there is one normal or neurotypical brain, but rather to respect many different types of brains and all their neurodiversity. So if the question is, can a person with Down syndrome, for instance, nonetheless be a genius, then the answer must be, and is, if you have the experience of knowing such a remarkable individual, yes, of course. They are part of humanity, and like all humanity, they are begenius, and should be enabled and aided to pursue their enjoyments to whatever extent is possible. From such examples, we see that Lafferty's definition of genius is not only expansive, but ever-expanding, a prompt for those of us, his readers, to continue pursuing and building on what he begins, and what he began. As I discuss in some length in both my, my Liverpool master's thesis and also in my science fiction studies article, um, Lafferty often ends with this sort of gesture to the collective, an exhortation to carry on once he has set things in motion. 
In his day after the world ended speech, it is his plea to the science fiction community to build more worlds, even secular ones if need be, just so long as we arrive at some sort of world to replace the unworlded flatland of the present moment. <coughs> the creation of worlds with their intended dimension, dimensions is his artistic imperative. Lafferty closes the Argo essay with the comparatively humble sign-off, thank you all. But of course, even there, he is alive to the resonance of the Greek, where to thank someone is Eucharisto, a call also to communion, to the celebration of our resurrection through Christ's sacrifice, the creation of a new world within each of us. Lafferty calls us here to community, to rapport with all of our fellows in time and space. But he calls us also to beget this rapport, to engender it in whatsoever ways we can to make it available to others as well, especially to those whom we might not thought of, have thought capable of such. These are the twin prongs of Lafferty's call, supplying the miss missing ethical element without which genius might as easily tend to the evil shoulder as to the good one, or favor the wolverine rather than the humane. First, we must all create new worlds out of the genius in us. Second, we must make it possible for others to create new worlds out of the genius in them. Together, this forms an aspiration beyond the mere accumulation and possession of intelligence, this being the Latin root of inter and lego, to collect within oneself, that's where we get intelligence, and instead to embrace our own ghostly, overflowing, split-off selves and be, be possessed by the genius that is in all of us, and that brings us all into accord now and forevermore. Thank you. Is, is it, and, and Lafferty's own sort of like, because of Catholicism, yeah, it, it's sort of interesting, like, where does that line between between genius within one and God within one, spirit within one and God within one, where would that fall for him? Um, but I think that's, that's definitely an interesting parallel. Yeah. I was just interested that how does epictetes fall into this as well as sort of the mm -hmm. uh, expression of genius mm -hmm. and, but with the idea that he was created as a compendium of all humans of, of all humanity yeah they, they literally poured genius into him i guess that uh yeah, from so and he's got all the different types including uh Shiplap is the only one who gets the gets the epithet of genius yeah. in uh, out of the institute, but but all of them possess it to some degree or another. Um, I mean, he's he's the one who ultimately can see the uh, um, the liaison at the end. Um, right. So I think that that might have something to do with it. Is because he is he's able to get to this. What they see as a failure. Um, again, he has a different way of thinking about it. He has a he has a way of seeing it that they're not able to. So he sees. The success of, of their their weirdo experiment um, in, in patching together this world and and you know especially that that image of the, the sort of like the the rancid saddle of creation where they, they see that at the end this this weird Taurus with all this sort of like festering and stuff and and he's able to see within that um, the life beginning yep. um, that they that they can't they can't see quite as well. Yeah, so I, I, I think that that has to be a part of it. It's like this is again this the seeing, you know, is 
as the story goes, through other eyes, and Epictetus is the mo- one who's most able to do that, um, at least within within that corner of Lafferty's universe. Um, yeah, I was wondering, well, about, for example, most of the people in the hippie dystopias, mm-hmm. where they seem to have lost their genius and to be hopeless, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know where that fits with this. I think there's there's certainly a sense in, w- in which they seem to be to be squandering their genius. I mean, Lafferty has this this weird uh, this weird essay that he wrote on on spec for Esquire in the seventies called Notes on the Golden Age, um, and they didn't pick it up, of course. So, um, but but even there, he sort of grants he, he discusses like in the most positive terms he can muster. The uh, what does remain of, of genius, or what he finds, the gold that he finds. Like he often uses gold as a um, as a synonym for for sort of genius or ingenuity um, in the hippie era, and he finds it in their in their color schemes, um, in their posters, in the in the printing that they do, um, in the in the happenings, like the, the the festivities and happenings that they you know the that they pull together, less so the actual events at the happenings than the, the spectacle of it. He finds he finds it there. Um, so I think I think for him that would be a part of a part of this call, which is, you know, any form of of mental conformity is going to detract from your own sort of specific genius. So pursue pursue your enjoyments where they lead you. And then again, like the, the genius, you know, to those people is 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 not Guided by this this sort of ethical burden that he places on it, so a lot of the things that they are just pursuing, um, you know, their own enjoyments and fancies, but it just leads them into this this very repetitious cycle. Like they also see in, in Flaming Ducks and Giant Bread, where it's just it's the same year coming back around over and over again. Um, so I think that would be his his sort of sense of, of what the hippies were doing at that time. Um, by the time he's writing this particular essay, the hippies are, are, have been gone for a long time, so it's not as much on his mind probably as it was when he was he was writing like Ishmael and the Barons and, and those types of works in the early to mid seventies. It's clear I'd like to be able to discuss this with you. I'm very very get to talk about it much. Um, I expect to be being interviewed about half like else. And we haven't talked about it much because he was also notoriously a also notoriously a commentator of sexual objects. Yes, the pseudographia of sexuality. So the, um, psychopathia sexuality. So the fact that what he shared, so you may so you may find there what you're looking what you are lacking when he is saying what many well-educated, many well-educated blondish Englishmen were saying in 1895. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think you may be, um, also I think you may be overlooking that. Lafferty the Latinist, in going on about genius, is on the whole not likely to mean entirely what we mean. He is good. He means the because Latin genius is not the special form of thought that Dalton said it was. Well, it is the well 
It is the indwelling spirit, possibly even the masculinity of, of the person. But I suspect closest to attitude is somewhat idiosyncratic would be good angle. And if you listen to what, and I thank you for the quote you give us, but if you listen to the this is with that in mind, you will find it. You will find a different meaning. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Ellis. Of course, I, I could go on all day about Ellis's sort of uh, collation of, of uh, sexual proclivities, which is more enormously important in the, in the research of, of of sex and beginning to to get around like the the banning of homosexuality and other things. But the I do that, so it's interesting because Lafferty does actually use uh, genius in a couple of instances for uh, female characters. Um, once, once in Adam had three brothers, the the, the bride, um, in that in the that ultimately unhappy relationship or somewhat happy relationship is is a positive genius on the piano. And in Selenium Ghosts, the the actress is is a is a glowing genius there, um, and she's the, pulling the strings at some point. Does he ever eat tuna? Does he what? Does he ever eat tuna, which would be feminine? No, he doesn't. He never uses the the feminine for it. So, so I think that I mean, like all other things with 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 Lafferty, I think he he takes his Latinisms where he finds them and he leaves them where he doesn't. Um, so it's. Oh yeah. No, I think he's like. I think he's like Charles Lafferty. He's like a good keyboard the box. That's. A, I think that's a great a great image for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I should make the observation that for all of this, for all of this egalitarianism of the genius of everybody, uh, you notice that how many Lafferty novels in particular are about elites? Small circles of usually a dozen people who run the borough or think they do. Uh, like the, the, the scribbling giants in Into Lafferty, for instance. Right. Yeah, but most of them couldn't. I think the thinking they run it is, is important there, certainly. They're, they're coteries, um, you know, but how many of them ultimately have, like, lasting effects on the world beyond what they what they really think they do? I mean, the, the kids in Sermon Sex do, um, and they're, and they're definitely, but they're not, they're only elites by the quality of their genius, um, and what the effect they have is to, to drown all of North America. But, um, so I'm, um, yeah, I mean, Lafferty certainly writes writes about like, but does does he write you know, fourth mansions like the Marotta group in fourth mansions? They're a self constituted elite, and certainly they would be among the wealthy of Tulsa. But you know, or do we do we go to them because of that wealth? Like that's just what enables, I guess, the activities that they're that they're undertaking there. Um, there's plenty of demotic energy and you know. Cat the Taskmaster, and plenty of other ones where he's like he presents a sort of a genius of the working class, and or of, of the class or rebellion against like a, an elite as well. Well, just in response to that, in uh, Fourth Mansions, I would say the book is showing these four conspiracies, these four elite groups that think they are the world, but ultimately. Um, Freddie Foley as the uh, representative of every man is saying that we common humans actually can mm-hmm. run the world if we're successful. 
self, the self-appointed. Yeah, the only ones who, the only ones who are, I guess, who, who become they become self-appointed by the means of like finding themselves that way. I'm not sure. Or by you know, embracing all the strengths right. of, of, of the other groups. The balance of all of the these other sort of elemental genius forces. That's interesting. Yeah, the, I mean, the the role of power, I think, in Lafferty is is, is maybe a different question. Like where to like where does where does power come from? Where should it come from? Um, it changes depending on the tenor of the work that he's holding, especially when he he has these all these sorts of dystopias where power is is functioning one way, and then he has you know these. Tulsa stories where where power functions another way, and he has his deep space stories where, where power functions in another way entirely. Um, so that would be, a, I think, an interesting question to pursue further. I, w- I was wondering if you experimented with seeing everybody as a genius and if so, how did it work out? Mm-hmm. I've I, I strived to do so uh, ever since the first time I, I read the, this essay, um, which is, and uh, how I usually find out, um, you know, so Mark Twain used to have a game when he was bored at parties, which was he would, uh, he would, if he was in a conversation and found himself being tremendously bored by a person who, you know, in all fairness, probably was a tremendous bore, he would ask himself, why, why do I find this person so boring? Like, what is it about them that, that I find, I find so dull? And then, and then he never lacked for entertainment once he asked himself that question. <laughs> and so, and I think that that's sort of the same thing. It's like if, if if I see a person, you know, who in my own sort of snobbishness I, I see is like like I struggle to find a genius in, then uh, you know, then like asking myself, well, where where is where where can I find this person's genius? What are they What are they really good at? What are they as good at as anybody else in the world? And um, and for some people, that's that's like you know. Loafing and fishing, like that's that's where their where their genius lies. But you know, there's no there's no harm in pursuing that really. Um, and you know, and then again, for some people, you know, it's their genius is in you know large scale corporate fraud, and, and maybe, there is, maybe, maybe there is some harm in pursuing that. So um, you know, it's not always to be encouraged, but but recognizing it, I think, is a different question from from condoning it. And that does, I think it does become an interesting one in, in, in terms of meeting different people. Thank you. That's an excellent place to stop. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew.